Blog Talk Radio. J. Rabin, and I'm very glad you're joining us again today. For those of you who listen, know that we are on every Wednesday night on Blog Talk Radio at 6 p.m. Eastern Daylight and Standard Times, and uh, always glad to have you. We are here actually to serve you, and tonight we'll be following up on that exact idea with uh, a discussion with my guest, John Renesh, who is the author of The Great Growing Up, Being Responsible for Humanity's Future. As those of you who listen with any regularity know, or to the TV show we have every week on Tuesday evenings here in New York City, we focus on subjects that are all about, well, you guessed it, creating a better world. What does that mean? What does that look like? Well, we really need progressive ideas, thoughtful ideas, rational ideas, just ideas, the kinds of notions that create a sense of cooperation between people the way we've actually had for thousands of years but has become somewhat lost and drowned in a sea of greed and uh, I would actually say pathology among a small handful of renegades, really, but unfortunately it creates a ship sort of like the Titanic. And our guest this evening has really hit the nail on the head in so many ways in this book. Let me tell you a little bit about John Renish, and then we'll get into the body of the show itself. John is an advisor, mentor, futurist, and writer on matters of social and organizational change. He believes that commerce holds the key to bringing about a global shift of human consciousness, thus creating a future of tremendous possibility for humankind, the possibility that will allow humanity to transcend the inevitable future that can be projected from current trends. John has been a keynote speaker internationally, a private mentor and advisor to uh, different consultants. He is an anthologist. He's written a number of books. He is a former business owner and entrepreneur. He left the chief executive position in the real estate business in the mid-1980s after entering a period of personal introspection prompted by his concerns for our collective future. And from there, he embarked upon a new path. 
well, he has done so many things, it would take too long to go into them, but including uh, serving as publisher and editor-in-chief of New Leaders Press, and which is dedicated to publishing progressive business books and periodicals. John has created 12 business anthologies, as just mentioned, on the subject of business and transformation. Over 300 visionaries have contributed to these books, among whom are such experts and professionals and successful entrepreneurs as Warren Bennis, Gary Zukoff, One Minute Manager creator Ken Blanchard, Rianne Eisler, Scott Peck, the founder of The Body Shop, Anita Roddick, and on the list go, several of whom, by the way, have been guests on either A Better World or uh, radio or TV. But tonight, we want to spend today's show speaking with John about his discoveries and his recommendations, as well as his analysis of our current situation, which all you have to do is take a glance in the direction of Washington, D.C., to see how dire it is, both literally and symbolically. John, thanks for being a guest today on A Better World. Thanks for having me, Mitchell. Absolutely, a real pleasure. You've done a body of substantive work that is just a pleasure to be able to behold and to see such a rich commitment to the well-being and uh, correcting of our society. It's really a pleasure, John. Uh, You know, since I mentioned it, I mean, why don't we just put our toe in the water here by looking at your ideas that are broader in the context of the current debacle we're experiencing now in Washington and Congress. What would you have to say about, from your point of view, what is going on here? Uh, well, to, for me, it, it, it's incredibly good timing in that when I've got a book out there that's a, my, my latest book the, called The Great Growing Up and How We Need to Get Out of Our Adolescence as a, as a Species, and start being responsible adults, that Washington would go into this incredible demonstration of adolescenthood, uh, you might yeah. even say childhood, and so it's yeah. very convenient that uh, they're doing this, acting this out, because more people are now responding to, oh, we are still in our adolescence, look at Washington. Whereas exactly. before this last couple of years, people might have looked at me a little more askance, like, what do you mean, we're all adults? And they're suddenly seeing that, we are not, and that we were either in our adolescence enacting it out, as in our Washington system of governance, or we are tolerating it, which means we're, still, we're going along like the teenagers of old who, who go along with the kids that are acting out their adolescence. So it's still adolescent behavior, whether it's action, being in action or tolerating the action or putting up with the action and therefore condoning the action. So I, I, yes, I, I by, think it's great yeah. for me in the book and the idea that we need to grow up as a species and take responsibility and basically clean up our room and start being responsible for ourselves without having to rely on some higher power to to uh, um, enforce to, some kind of higher to guide the way. Yeah, yeah, to guide the way. Sure, sure, sure. We no, I appreciate that point. Futures. Yeah, we are, we are responsible as adults. We are responsible for our future. Part of the premise of my work is that consciousness is causal. In other words, the more conscious we are, the more our reality changes. 
So if we start becoming more conscious and more responsible for ourselves, not relying on other people to do it for us, but doing it ourselves like responsible adults, our, our reality, our experience of life in the world will start to change. Indeed, indeed. And when you say become more conscious, then what is it that you're referring to? For instance, as an example, <clears throat> in the uh, course of business, if we are running a business that we see pollutes our planet or that uh, we are being so tight that we do not pay our employees correctly and there is uh, a growing dynamic of suppression among our workers and they begin to grumble. Is that, are those examples of becoming more conscious from your view? From my view it is because what, what we, if, we, if we want a sustainable uh, planet, in other words, if we, want to, if we want to remain viable as human beings on this earth, we need to take care yeah. of our environment. It's not, a, it's not a matter of an ideology. It's if we want to maintain the uh, livelihood in, in any way, shape, or form, for, if we're, we, can't, we cannot say that our air is clean, but yours can be dirty, or our, our water can be clean, but the other side of the world's world can be dirty. We're all, the global commons is supporting life, human life as we know it all over the world. So it's up to us to make, maintain that that is, in fact, preserved. Um, I like, to, I like to, to lump together three specific things. One is that, w that we have a pre human presence on this planet that is environmentally sustainable, spiritually fulfilling, and socially just. And we're lacking yes. very big time in all three of those areas. Yes, indeed. I think that's very true. Now, the question, one of the questions becomes, John, how do we educate people, especially, it, it really needs to be done across the board. I deal and grapple with these kinds of subjects and issues all the time. It's sort of my bread and butter. I really wish I had better bread and better butter, but this is just what the world has doled out to us at this point. <clears throat> but how do you embark upon educating, especially those in uh captains of industry, the positions of power, who are making so much money and are wielding so much power that they just don't seem to have much incentive for taking care of uh, the notion of sustainability for future generations. The, the present is so um, alluring to them. They get blindsided by the current wealth in their pocket. How do you deal with this? Well, Mitchell, I learned a long time ago that I can't change anybody. I can influence people. So if, I, if my book sells 100,000 copies and most of those people actually read the book, I can influence those 100,000 people. But I can't go out and change any, anybody. All I can, all I, the only control I have over changing anybody is me and changing myself. Uh, there is a renaissance going on in the world. There are lots of people. Uh, under the radar, so to speak, who are waking up and recognizing that that the things are unsustainable. They're not only unsustainable; they're not right. We're not living. Yes. We're not living to the best of our abilities here. This is not the best the human race can do. And more and more people are starting to recognize that. So as they recognize that, the best that those of us that are providing some kind of counsel or services or books or whatever. What we can do is make sure that they have that, those resources available to them so if they do start waking up 
if they do start having a, a crisis of conscience, if they do start thinking about changing the ways they're, they're managing their organizations or living their lives, there are resources for them to uh, access, and that would help support them in making any kind of changes they want to make in their lives. I think what Very is, true. The, the common complaint, I have a friend who is a, a ski instructor, and he's, ski, he's an instructor in a very uh, rich part of the, the United States where a lot of businessmen have second and third homes. A lot, of, a lot of executives have second and third homes. And he teaches their kids how to ski. And so mm -hmm. he's heard numbers of comments, almost from all of his clients, that yeah, I'm talking to my ski instructor, what does he know, right? And these guys are mm -hmm. saying, I'm really worried about the future my kids are going to grow up in. They're telling him that. Now, they're t not telling mm -hmm. him that. They're not telling that to the reporter in 60 Minutes, but they're telling their yeah. ski instructor, just casual conversation, I'm really worried about the world my kids are going to grow up in. So we know that yeah. those thoughts are there, those concerns are there about the future. And then they, But typically what they'll do is go back and get into the chairman's chair or the CEO's chair, and they start acting like they've been acting all along. But there's something percolating inside of these people. And when that gets to be okay to express publicly, we will start having will start turning the corner on this. When the, when the, the well-being yeah. of all starts taking the place of my special interest, that's when I think we're going to really see some steep uh, backpedaling. Well, the interesting thing is, John, that you and I both know that we very much want and root for a world that wakes up to the social, economic, uh, uh, realities, environmental realities that you and I, you know, in our lives think about a lot, discuss and contemplate how to create a better world, if you don't mind my using the phrase. And yet, uh, we no longer have the luxury of time for the popcorn to pop in the time that it would under ordinary circumstances. There's nothing ordinary right now. We're tipping the scales of the environment through climate change and global warming. We're, uh, we are dealing with solar flares of tremendous intensity. We're dealing with economic disparity, like some say never before in recorded history. Nothing so great as today. <clears throat> We're dealing with intense, environmental pollution we're dealing with uh, a wall street populated by such institutions as goldman sachs that are gobbling up land all over africa along with their buddies like monsanto to control future food supplies we're dealing in some way with an armageddon and it's a bit scary and daunting and at the same time i hear what you're saying there are many people on all levels of society that are waking up, they're, they're uh, taking the, um, the schmutz, as we say in Chinese, out from their eyes, and they're seeing what's really going on, smelling the coffee, so to speak. But what time do we have? How do we know that we're going to be able to sort of sufficiently wake up and people in positions of power who are affecting the climate change of the planet more than your ordinary rank and file, you know, Mr. and Mrs. Jones, in time to avert utter completely ca complete cataclysm. Well, if, you, if you're asking me to say when that's going to happen, I can't do that, Mitchell. 
but it's it's clear. No, no, no. I'm not asking. I'm I'm looking at the dynamic, John, between the general gradual waking up of people. Like, thankfully, they got over the the hangover, and uh, and the actual geological reality that we're facing. Looking at that dynamic tension. So if if we have a wake up and a significant change in behavior over the next 20, 30 years, uh, there's no doubt in my mind that the quality of life will be much different for our kids and our grandkids. Uh, that's mm-hmm. no doubt. Uh, does that mean we can't repair it? No, we could probably bring it back because the, the planet's pretty resilient. People are pr- pretty resilient. But we are in the process yeah. of leaving a future right now. It's, it's more than more than recent. It's like 10 years ago. We are in the process for the first time in history of actually being able to predict a future for our children that is less quality than ours. And that's the first time that's happened. We've improved the quality of life constantly throughout history, and suddenly we're looking at a future that looks like it may be flat or or much worse. So the question is, uh, at what point towards the decline do we actually wake up and start changing it because it's going to take some time to change even if we woke up if everybody in the world woke up today and started implementing measures to mitigate uh climate change and co2 emissions and and injustice in the world and all that it might be half a century before we actually start seeing the results of that (coughs) yeah so what shape are we going to be in a half a century or 60, 70 years down the road when it finally starts to turn because this thing has a lot of sure. momentum. It has several millennia of, of momentum going on it, and the industrial yeah. age has at least three or 400 years of, of momentum. So that's not going to stop. You're not going to put the brakes on that overnight and suddenly have a, create a new world. It's going to take some time. So that, that means basically that it's, it's going to get worse before it gets better, in my view. Yeah. Uh, and so what I'm what I'm focusing on, a lot of people are focusing on trying to keep the old paradigm alive, trying to keep it operational, because it's the only paradigm they've known. And yeah. I, I like to think of myself as working on the new paradigm that's trying to be being born and playing midwife to the new rather than trying to uh, maintain or repair or keep the other old one operating. Because the old one is outmoded. It's done. And it's going to crash eventually. And uh, those people that are holding on, trying to keep it fixed, it's like repairing an airplane while it's on the way down. Uh, mm-hmm. It's going to crash. They may pro- they may get another 100 feet out of, of a runway out of it, but it's basically going down. So I prefer to see what we can build newly that is more inclusive, more sustainable, uh, and more fulfilling for the human race. <clears throat> yeah. Now, the thing is this. Uh, since you uh, offered up that metaphor, uh, the other piece of it is this. Number one, I agree with you. And, you know, as it says in the field of dreams, uh, if we build it, they will come. And, of course, the uh, the great phrases of uh, Bucky Fuller, one of which is, uh, if you want to know what's going to happen in the future, design it. And uh, so I'm I'm all for that. That's really where I come from. But there's an interesting relationship between the old and the new. And while we are very much looking to shape a new paradigm, a new world that has justice as its pillar and foundation, and it has ecological and environmental awareness and accountability, responsibility as another one of its pillars, and 
human relationships that are of a more, let's say, enlightened level, on and on. In other words, the great maturing, the great growing up, as you well put it as the name of your book, John, still and all, it's not like we may not have a banking system anymore. It may, it may be that we don't have money at all. That's certainly a possibility. And many are really very much for that. But, you know, there will probably be some aspects of the old that get parlayed into the new, but with a new consciousness, a new morality, God willing. And so how do you see that transition? Um, it'll probably be a little bumpy. When you when you are birthing a new paradigm, it doesn't. It, it's basically built on an entirely different set of assumptions as the old paradigm. So once you have those new assumptions, those new underpinnings, those new foundations for the new paradigm, it doesn't mean that everything that the old paradigm contained, all its content, is going to be thrown out. Uh, right. We're still going to require laws. We're still going to require some bureaucracy. We're still going to require clocks, you know, that sort of thing. It's, yeah. The laws will start to shift. There will be amendments to the existing laws to conform to the values of the new paradigm, the more yeah. sustainable or fulfilling paradigm. Uh, so it'll, it'll t- it, the laws will get changed because the laws, the laws are the laws. So as the paradigm starts to change, certain people will come forth and champion certain changes in law. So there will be ch- law changes. Some laws will be repealed. Some new laws will probably come into effect. Probably different people will get elected into office, if we, presuming that we still have a representative democracy. Um, mm-hmm. all, all the content of the old will be looked again at and saying, is this good? Or yeah. It's kind of like moving, moving out of one house into another, a new house and saying, yeah. this stuff, these are all parts and pieces that we had to have for the old house. This is a new house. We don't need all those parts. So those go into the goodwill stack or the trash, and other things yeah. come in to replace them because we're operating yeah. now in a new set of assumptions, a new house order, so to speak. Sure. It's a good analogy. And from that point of view, do you – foresee about the nature because so much of business really focuses on the generation of profit which of course is money uh but it is also just um zeros and decimals on a spreadsheet and the gold standard was abandoned back in 1933 so would you see the new paradigm as being based on a hard metal, a precious metal, such as gold or silver, or an entirely new way of looking at this notion of monetary exchange? Mm. Um, I think it was 71 that the gold standard was rescinded. Well, it was completed in 71, yes. Yeah, but initiated on, uh, by FDR. But anyway, uh, you're, 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 the, the uh, alternative currency or types of currency is a little out of my ballpark, but I'm reminded of... Um, um, a metaphor that I think it was Warren Bennis used years and years ago, which is uh, the purpose of a business is to be of service. Profit is needed in order for it to survive. But the the purpose of business is not just to generate profit no more than the body's purpose is to flow blood. Yeah. That, that's always stuck with me. If, if we thought our purpose was to pump blood, and that was our only purpose, uh, exactly. it, would be pretty, 
I mean, that's that's pretty silly. So to think of that's an organization, right. a, a for-profit organization, that its sole purpose is to make profit, to me, is childish and adolescent and uh, very yep. naive. And, it, unfortunately, that principle, which was championed by Milton Friedman and made sacred yep. by the, the market fundamentalists, has yep. been the cause for more harm and more damage and more suffering probably than anything else in the Western world. I knew we would agree. <laughs> in that light, I uh, I rewrote uh, the paragraph in, um, in the corporate documents uh, that recasts the purpose of a corporation exactly as Walt, as um, Bennis stated, something very similar, that it's basically outlining this notion of a multiple bottom line that money is generated from providing a service. Now, you know, if we roll back time a little bit, John, isn't that the way things used to be in days of old? You provided a service. The customer was number one. You cared deeply about providing something of value. Wasn't that uh, – I feel like I even grew up with that kind of sensibility. I, I think when you had the uh, family-owned business, if you go back to that, yeah. let's say the farm, that might have been uh, more the rule of the day or the, the way the – way, just the way people happened because – you went into the market and you took your corn or you took your tomatoes or you took your sheep or whatever, and you bartered that or traded that or whatever, and people sure. prided yourself on pr providing very good ripe potatoes or potatoes or tomatoes or wheat or whatever. So it had your brand on it. I mean, that's not the language they were using then. Uh, sure. The industrial age kind of um, when we but started – But it, it was wearing your reputation. It was wearing your reputation as a farmer. Well, if, you know, if, if you went into town and nobody bought your potatoes anymore, it's probably because somebody else was doing a better job raising potatoes. Very simple. Yeah. But it, it, yeah. it, so the idea was best quality, best service, etc. But the sure. industrial age kind of sped that whole thing up and impersonalized the hell out of it. So now That's it's right. basically the cheapest, the, the quickest. Um, and at that point in time, the customer became kind of the market out there, the customer, yeah, that's a pretty good idea, it's expressing it, the customer became the market, it wasn't Mrs. Smith or Mr. Jones that were buying my that's potatoes, right. it's the customer, it's, it's, I don't even see Well, it really customer. became the consumer, even worse, it became the consumer, which is this yeah. anonymous, you know, ro robotic kind of creature that spends money with a plastic card, you know. What, what we're, yeah. I think we're seeing is the, the, the shadow of the industrial age, if I could use that term, yeah, uh, and that's it's come a good circle image. Where the you know every everything that comes up, every new human uh, creation, eventually shows its dirty side or its dark side. Yes, and we're, exactly. we're seeing the uh, the monster run rampant. And the industrial age is not necessarily the villain. It's just that it's been manipulated uh, by a lot of people, so that it's it's uh, doing in in. in it's doing a lot of good for convenience and consumption and cheap consumption, but it's doing a lot yeah. of harm in terms of our environment and our relationships with one another. Yes, exactly. We are speaking with John Renish, the author of The Great Growing Up, 
being responsible for humanity's future. That's something that everybody seems to want. Not everybody. I would dare say our friends and colleagues are not interested in ducking at all, but looking at, you know, with eyes wide open. But so much of our culture is very escapist in nature in many things, such as social media, when it's not looking to serve social justice. And uh, there are many, many outlets where people can kind of uh, get away from the real pressing matters at hand. And, of course, we understand the wish to reduce the stress. In fact, that was a very interesting point you made in research you uncovered, John, in your book about, uh, about stress. On the one hand, maybe you could speak to us about that. On the one hand, you stated that uh, to have too much stress will kill an organism, whether it's an animal, an amoeba, or a human. And without any stress at all, that is also dangerous. Could you comment on that uh, point you made? Yeah, well, it takes, uh, it, it takes an ebb and flow of attention, focus, let's call it stress, to sustain life. So if you, the experiment that I remember back from the 60s or 70s was if you put an amoeba in tepid water and made it completely comfortable, it would die. And if you just didn't yeah. but simulated it, it would die. So constant stress or constant simulation will kill you as much as constant sitting in a hot tub will kill you. Uh, <laughs> right, so right. What, what we're designed to do is rest and then be in action, and then rest and be in action. And this yeah. this more recent, in the last century, uh, lifestyle of being basically under stress a lot is probably what we can attribute a lot of our illness and obesity and and heart disease and so forth to is that we're under stress exactly. all the time, thinking that we we're superhuman and we can do that. And what even a lot of leaders don't realize is that you need to have what what John O'Neill refers to as retreat or rest or what we're now starting to call rebooting. Uh, rebooting yeah. ourselves, taking some time, unplugging ourselves, and taking yeah. some time for reflection. And when you take time for reflection and introspection and so forth and rest and relax and retreat, you are then able to see yourself more clearly and you are more likely to recognize where those darker places, those shadow parts of yourself are residing and how they're showing up in your life and how you lead in your organization. Yes, Exactly. Well put, well put. I'm just coming up with a funny image, death by jacuzzi, you know. Um, but <laughs> well, it, it has happened. I've heard, of, I've heard people. They have found people in hot tubs, um, basically parboiled. <laughs> oh my God, that sounds like a Cal a Californian illness. Well, but, that's, uh, that's maybe, because I live here. Maybe that's why I've heard of it. Yes, right. Exactly. Very funny. Uh, you know, you are, of course, a, a global futurist. You've got a rich background in economics, finance, and business. You consult to um, and have consulted to many, uh, you know, captains of industry. Uh, what do you say to them when you sit down? I'm just interested to know, and I think our audience would be too. Looking at, I mean, one of the, I'm thinking about one of the another uh, business consultant we had on the show some time ago, Hunter Lovins, uh, Amory Lovins' wife, who is the author of several books, including you probably know her, named uh, one called Climate Capitalism, which I, I happen to be very fond of. And I mean, you mean, you mean she natural does, capitalism, don't you? Well, that's her first one. 
Okay. It is then followed. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I okay. probably sorry, interviewed sorry about two years challenge. ago. No, 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 that's all right. Okay. It's the same. It's the same um, idea. I mean, she's had she's had clients such as Walmart and and uh, Chevron or Shell and other really big names yep. who um, are very interested at least in energy efficiency, and many of them are getting bitten by the bug of uh, green thinking, and they recognize it's good for the bottom line. Now, I don't know why it took them so bloody long. I mean, uh, some of us, when I was in my 20s, I figured that one out. It didn't seem very complicated, but if you do the right thing and you respect the earth, you won't get fines, you won't get penalties, you might not even have jail time, which if you keep, you know, engaging in illegal or criminal activities by breaking the Clean Air Act or the Clean Water Act or more local uh, ordinances, you're in trouble. And to save a couple of dollars because you don't want to put a scrubber in your um, in your chimney, it does not make sense. So you don't have to be a rocket scientist to figure this out, but still and all, big corporations have been very slow to recognize the economic value of doing things right. And, Hunter, uh, you know, that, Hunter, Mitchell, yeah, one please. of the things that I, 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 I really respect Hunter for, she was one of the uh, leading people, still is one of the leading people in shifting the thinking from becoming environmentally friendly would cost us money and therefore affect the bottom line to sh- demonstrating through skill and artful uh, audiovisuals and research yes. that no be- becoming environmentally friendly was in fact could make the company more profitable and that exactly. was long, it's a mindset the, old, the, the the latter is the former is still the mindset out there for a lot of people because they're old farts and they don't know any better but she has put together some very powerful presentations. I saw one 10, 12 years ago uh-huh. Uh-huh. Uh, when we were at a similar meeting, and uh, it was very powerful, convincing that yeah. how you're thinking about and being becoming a green organization is entirely lopsided. And it was very, yeah. very convincing. And and she's doing a lot to have companies wake up to the fact that their thinking is flawed and that if they really enter into becoming a green company intelligently, they will actually be more profitable than they were before. That's excellent. That's excellent. Yeah, that was the point I wanted to make. When you approach a company or a company approaches you for some advice and consulting, John, what, what, and let's just say you're even dealing on the C level, what kind of conversation, what does that conversation sound like? Well, I first of all, I don't approach them. Uh, they usually read somebody in their organization usually reads something I wrote or heard me speak or something. Yeah. So they come to me kind of knowing what they're getting into, and so the uh-huh. conversation I, I don't I don't have to convert anybody. I gave that up 50, 20 years ago converting people. If they're yeah. curious in what I have to say and what I have to offer, and the coaching I can the coaching direction I can take them in, I'm very interested in working with them. Uh, but I'm not going to go into a company that's got its mind weighed up about how things are supposed to be, which is maybe in contra- contradictory to the way I think things could be, and try to convince them of anything. I'm beyond trying to convince. If somebody is interested in what I have said or how I have expressed my values, 
and they're interested in knowing more, being coached, being supported in that process, I'm all I'm open arms. Yes, I I've gotten you. to the age myself at this point where I just don't try to do any convincing to anybody. If they are, yeah. if they're curious and they they want more information, and they may be heading in this direction and would like a little support, I'm all, all I'm game to work with them. Sure, you could say that if they take that first step, you're willing to meet them step by step. But if not, you know, better to look on to the next person who would be. So yeah. No, I think that's very intelligent, and uh, let's just hope enough people step in your direction, I would say. (laughs) Um, (laughs) uh, As a global futurist, looking into your crystal ball that has lots of numbers and charts and statistics in it as well, what is it that you see? What do you, you did say before, you gave us a little bit of a hint, which is that you think things are going to get harder and bumpier before they get better. Um, what do you what do you foresee, and what do you what are you kind of laying out in your book for us? Well, Mitchell, I mean, people change for two reasons. Typically, they change because there's a lot of pain in in staying the way, keeping things the way they are, or they yeah. see some incredible pleasure that they're missing out on because of the way things are. So they change because they want to make things more pleasurable, or they want to avoid more pain. Uh, <laughs> I, it sounds so view, primitive, John, doesn't it? To seem so yep. primitive for for but intellectual, it, uh, gifted but, people, and, but true it is. Yeah. And seems it seems to me that there that 20 years ago there was enough pain to motivate us to change. But clearly, I was wrong yeah. about that because we're not making the change. So, yeah. from my point of view, I think we're not going to evolve positively from pleasure because not enough people can see the vision of what's possible. I can, and a lot of other people I know can. Mm-hmm. Uh, but most of the people, are, I think, are going to actually start jumping on the bandwagon for change when it gets even more painful. And how much, how much, has to, how much of the existing paradigm has to crumble? How much of the... Uh, I mean, our government is, <laughs> is, in, is about to default, and we are... I, I, I know the news today might have been some... Had some difference on that, but here we are shutting down the government for God's sakes. Of the, the well, at least for 15 days, that's half a month. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's 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 like, isn't this insane? Isn't anybody paying attention to the insanity of the whole thing? So yeah. when yeah. the pain is big enough, we will we will finally get into action as a as a species, as a country, as a global society, and and see make insist on people that will either make change happen or get the hell out of the way. And so I, yeah. I see us changing. I just don't. I know we're going to transform. I absolutely know that for sure. What condition yeah. the ship will be in when that happens, I do not know. Yeah. When we, I know we have the will. I mean, excuse me. I know we have the capacity to bring about yeah. a new paradigm in the world. I know we have that capacity. What I don't know is when we will actually try to implement it, and if it'll be. Uh, how how dire things will be when that implementation takes place and the actual correction starts getting implemented. Yeah, I hear you. I hear you. And some it's people sort of like that and say you're a doomsdayer. And I, I, I think I'm not a doomsdayer. I'm a, I'm a perennial optimist because I've been doing this for 30 years and I keep seeing yeah. what we could have if we really put our consciousness to it. Oh, I don't hear what you're saying as doomsday at all. I think it's uh, incredibly uh, practical um, in your seeing the nature of human behavior and the lack of maturity. 
you know, in the land of the blind, the one man is king. And I, my concern looking at uh, both Wall Street and Washington, D.C., is that they actually do not see the uh, infantile or even adolescent ways that they are manifesting. They do not see that linking uh, a bill that, let's say, the Republicans are unhappy with, with actually allowing an entire government, the most powerful one on the planet, to go into default because there's something that Congress passed that they don't like. It's sort of like, if you don't give me this lollipop, I am going to smash all lollipops on this side of the Mississippi. I mean, it just, it's so far-fetched that it, it, it lost all semblance of rational and reason. But if you don't see that, if you, don't, you think it's okay to link those things and just call it politics as usual, that's, there's no difference between that and, let's say, the mafia coming and saying, well, of course we had, to, we had to take your son because, you know, we didn't get our way, you know. Your firstborn. You know, I'm I'm going a little further, but not that much. The, yeah, please. Uh, the metaphor I'm, that's coming to mind as you're talking, Mitchell, is the the boiled frog. Uh, yes, yeah, sure. And, and I, I'm not. Gonna, I'm just going to speak for Americans right now, but I think the Americans yes. have been uh, the heat has been slowly generating on the pot, and we're not even aware that how hot the water is, the hot or the hot yes. tub. And that exactly. we just become right. entranced and, and eventually encomed uh, by what's going on. So we've just developed this incredible amount of tolerance for dysfunctional behavior. And yes. that, that means basically a deadening of the soul, a killing of That's the spirit. Right. And right. when it gets That's to be right. so painful that we say, you know, like they did in the movie Network, I'm not going to take this anymore. Right. Um, I'm mad as hell. I'm not going to take it anymore. We'll have a revolution. There will be a revolution. I guarantee it. Yeah. And it may be armed. I I hope it won't be. But it'll definitely be a revolution of ideology and a revolution of of spirit. That's right. There will be a revolution at some point in time. Will it come in time? I don't know. Will it come too late? And will it? Yeah, sure. And is the revolution going to be simply, let's say, an evolution a new spinning of the wheel without, as you say, uh, violence, which oftentimes accompanies revolutions? Or can it be, let's just say, more mature, which is what, of course, you're calling for in your book, and certainly something that I'm very much behind. Um, I'd like to ask you, John, uh, in our closing minutes here, uh, when you were writing this book and doing the research for it, what would you say, uh, what, what pieces of research did you come upon that particularly titillated you and either startled you or filled you with hope? Mm. Your book is a wonderful compendium, by the way, of interesting data points. And, um, you know, it really does lead people along a path of understanding and opening up to uh, business as a transformational agent, I really feel that way, and living as a transformational agent, if I may say. Uh, so I'm just curious. I mean, I'm enjoying the sort of the ebb and flow of ideas and just was wondering if there was 
uh, one or two or three things that just particularly kind of grabbed you and shook you up in one way or another? Um, my answer is probably may, may surprise you, but uh, somebody early on re- referred, they were really impressed with the research I had done, and yeah. I was not aware of doing any research. Uh, the, the, the research in, in italics, the research that you're referring to, has just been part of my work for the last 30 years. It's just stuff yeah. I've come across. Uh, yeah. I didn't have a research staff. I didn't have. I didn't go out and research stuff. The book, when I finished the book, it was three times longer, three times the size it is now. And I oh. recognized that I had to, to get a print edition of that book out. Nobody was going to print 600 pages of, of text. So I ended up about two-thirds of the book is, is on the cutting room floor, as they say. Mm-hmm. Um, but but that, wow. the research quote has been my life, my living my work the last uh, 25, 25, 30 years. Part of my editing was that a lot of my references were old and people thought I needed to have more modern references. But uh, it's, I guess my life has been, if, you, if you're doing something long enough and in the area of tr- social transformation and the future, uh, you, the research kind of rubs off on you. And I'm, like I say, I wasn't even thinking of it yeah. as research. Um, Interesting. But... It, but the idea, I guess, the one idea that pops out, not, this is not necessarily in direct response to your question, but uh-huh. the one thing that jumps out as a concept for me is Barbara Marx's Hubbard's, she, she's the first to use the phrase, as far as I know, is conscious evolution. Yes. And that is, for the first time in history, the human race has the opportunity to say, we want to evolve on purpose, intending yeah. to, and this is the yes. step we can take. Now, I would add, based on what you just said a few minutes ago, Mitchell, that it will, if it's not a revolution, it's going to be a pretty damn sudden evolution. <laughs> it's, not yeah, right. evolution it's not going to be evolution over <laughs> centuries. It's going to be evolution over sure. decades. Right. So it'll be pretty cool. Right, exactly. You could call it a quantum evolution. You know. There you go. Somebody right, must exactly. have thought of that, but if not, it's yours. That's right, exactly. <laughs> I think all thoughts belong to all of us. It's just it occurs into one brain system sometimes faster than in someone else's, but <laughs> I think it's a, every, a global every brain every, trust. Yeah, every once huh? in a while I, I have a thought or a phrase or an idea, and eventually sure. I'll Google it or something and search around for it and find out it was being talked about by the Greeks 2,500 years ago. Exactly. <laughs> so yeah, it, exactly. it adds, adds credence to the fact that there's no such thing as a, good, a new idea. That's right, exactly, exactly. Well, listen, I, you've assembled perhaps then a lot of good old ideas here and uh, really strung them together in a new way. And uh, certainly I want to just say that I felt your book is inspiring and it's hopeful while trotting out a lot of the facts and figures of what we have done to our planet Earth, what we have done to each other, things that are very sobering and things we need to be accountable for. And uh, I feel it's very much in the right direction. Uh, so I really want to thank you for your good work, John. Thank you John. for that. Yeah, thank you for that. Absolutely. Absolutely. And uh, I want to encourage you to continue and uh, can well, continue planning, to advise. We're not planning to retire. We're not retiring. <laughs> We've given up. That's old paradigm, isn't it? Yes. 
talk about old paradigms. Great. Uh, your website is johnrenesh.com, correct? No. And that's no. R-E-N... Oh, no? No, it's renesh.com. Oh, renesh.com. Okay, fine. Yeah, R-E-N-E-S-C-H.com. Okay, good. That's to my knowledge, easier. I'm the only Great. Renish left in the world, by the way. Is that so? What is the origin of that name? Uh, Alsace area of, between France and Germany, oh, the Alsatian region. Oh, yeah. Yeah. But I think I'm the it's end got of the, the line. That's interesting. The R-E-N is, uh, you know, somewhat French, um, and the uh, S-C-H is somewhat German. So mm-hmm. there you go. Alsatian. I'm just taking that on people that seem to know about those sorts of things. Yeah, right, right. I know a little something about it. (laughs) Interesting. Yeah, I just did a little etymology of your name. So, anyway, I really want to thank you again for joining us, uh, joining me on The Better World and our audience. Nice to be here. Good, very good. We'll talk again soon, John. Thanks again. Okay, Mitchell. Okay. Bye-bye now. Bye-bye. Take care. Bye-bye. That was John Renesh we spent the uh, program speaking with, uh, the author of several books, the last being and the subject of today's show, The Great Growing Up, Being Responsible for Humanity's Future. And you can get more information. He does have a newsletter, so let me bring that forward as well. Renesh.com, www.renesch.com. You know, this subject of uh, maturing is one that I am playing upon, oh, all the time? I think so. It is so much that as we look around the world and look at human behavior, and I'm not saying this just because I have a background in psychology, but uh, certainly I do look at the world through that lens, no question about it. But honestly... If you look and watch the behavior of our so-called professional politicians, our captains of industry, what we see is, as John Well put it, adolescent behavior and sometimes simply infantile behavior. I feel Freud can play a vital role in helping us understand the uh, very obsessive, compulsive and neurotic nature of so many human beings as much as those in the so-called rank and file of our society and those as the captains truly when we look at closely the nature of greed and the motivations behind it typically it's coming from a base of fear of not having enough, this unquenchable fear of not having enough or not being enough, hence the quest to power, that also is seeming unquenchable. There's never enough. These are quirks of the human psyche. These are not aspects of our nature to be proud of. In fact, If there's a good use of surgery, here is a place to utilize it, to actually see those aspects of ourselves and be horrified and go, ah, get me out of here. Or, ah, now, now, 
No worry, my dear fear. It's not a problem. We have come to care for you. That would be the cerebral cortex talking, by the way, or the prefrontal lobes to the reptilian brain, in case you didn't know the cast of characters in the play. And, you know, to caress that reptilian brain and say, "Ah, no need to flight, no need to flee. All is well here in the larger panoply of our brain and our entire holistic system, nervous and every other system of our being. So what you can see is that so much of human motivation is rooted in a few simple fundamental emotions. See, these are not rational decisions to do harm to the planet or to do harm to each other. If that is the case, that's another level of pathology without question. But the general malaise is one in which we fancy ourselves doing good, even if it's just, say, for our families. But in fact, we are wreaking havoc everywhere we touch, but not being conscious of the consequences. So as a result, we may say to ourselves something like, if we were Mr. Lockheed or Boeing, let's stick with Lockheed for a moment, I am providing weapons that will protect our way of life and our national security as good Americans. Wow. On the surface, yes, sure, I understand, Mr. Lockheed, but I want to say that framing the world from that defensive place is itself a problem. And as John was speaking eloquently about the old paradigm needing to shift to the new, this is part of the old paradigm that really does reach back thousands of years. If you look at human history, of course, it is truly a military history. It is a history, essentially, of war and conquest. It is not so much a history of peace and cultural brilliance and artistry, although that was there also. Now, some say you need the dynamic tension in the culture for the artistic nature to come to the surface, but you don't have to go manufacturing more more dynamism or tension anywhere. There is enough tension existing where there is no war but peace and just regarding the ebb and flow of weather, the ebb and flow of water, the ebb and flow of the seasons, the natural ebb and flow between people, the ebb and flow of food and scarcity, water or desert. There are plenty of polar tensions and conflicts on the planet to catalyze artistic and cultural expression. You don't have to add to it by human beings' serious neurosis or psychosis in order to create 
a lively cultural expression. Are you with me? So from that point of view, we could say as the so-called leaders of the world, and I really put that in quotation marks, uh, I would say that if we could dare don that hat, we could say, look, I've been pressing for this for decades. The G7, the G20, the Security Council, led by the U.S. president, sits down and says, we are going to change the world. We're going to change it from being purely a competitive dog-eat-dog kind of world to the higher-level functions of our nervous system that we've all been gifted with but are underutilizing but completely. So we're going to move forward in our brain system. We're going to move forward in life to our prefrontal lobes, folks, together, and we're going to build a world that cooperates nation to nation, arm in arm, helping each other. Oh, there's plenty of profit. There's plenty of business for everyone. Each one brings his or her own talents to the forefront, to the foreground, and we utilize them in unison, in concert. See? Music already. And Everyone will make money. There's plenty of money. Or maybe we find that we don't need money at all. That's a whole other conversation. But even if we do maintain some manner of exchange, be it barter or a currency system, even still, personally believe, no matter what that origin of the currency system is, and that's an interesting conversation in itself, and since I just returned from... Uh, Boulder, where I was one of the speakers and co-moderators of panels at the Global Breakthrough Energy Movement Conference, where the last couple of shows have been dedicated to that. And if you want more information on that during this long parenthesis, you can simply go to abetterworld.tv, and our wonderful web interns have put uh, one stream after another including my own, of course, uh, there for your ease of viewing. And you can see some real intellectual giants, inventors, scientists, philosophers speak about their knowledge of the world to come because it's the world that we are designing, as I was quoting Buckminster Fuller before, about. But what I'm saying is that we can look forward and move forward to, you could say, gently caress the fear-based paradigm, the old paradigm, into the new to create this new world. And the U.S. president, to come back to that specific, can say, now look, we know this ain't working. (laughs) Nuclear weapons, armaments galore, spending a huge portion of each of our respective governmental, national, federal budgets on killing each other? Oh, my God. There has got to be a better way than worrying each day and night whether our neighbors are looking to take us over. I mean, come on. This is primitive, and we really can go beyond this. So I think that some leadership in this domain could come in so 
handily, and that we, Americans, are really the ones to lead the way. Now, naive, oh, of course, blissfully naive, Mitchell. How could you even consider? Don't you know who rules the world? Well, I have some sense of that. Yes, indeed I do. However, you want to talk about fear, fear of loss. How do I put this, folks? But the ones with the mostest are not necessarily the bestest. And anyone has the market cornered on money. They probably also have it cornered in fear. And they are the ones that are seeking to manipulate so heavily. They do not respect human nature. They do not respect people because they are afraid that people will not live up to their highest potential and treat each other with honor and integrity, with love and compassion, with simple decency and courtesy. But I dare say that there are conversations that we can have on this planet among the captains of industry, among the top officials of government, in which, through which, we can really have lively and fertile, fecund dialogue that would lead us to a place of feeling a sense of brotherhood, a sense of camaraderie. Humor joins us moment after moment. Playful spirit, sports, athletics, the arts. There are so many areas to build rapport among people that were otherwise at each other's throats in one way or another, even behind the scenes. It can be done. Even people of different memes, a la spiral, spiral dynamics, yes, people of different types of intelligence, people of different evolutionary statuses, if you will, social, economic, intellectual, political, kinesthetic. Emotional intelligence is something that can be grown and stimulated. And I believe it is in our best interest. I like to call it to do so. I do like to call it enlightened self-interest. If you are happy, so am I. If I'm happy, so will you be. The thing is, so much. It's really so simple. Oh, we can get rather complex about it, and there are major complexities in systems. So I'm not denying that. I find it awesome. However, when it comes to this human organism, the human being, mind, body, and spirit, there really is a dialogue, a trialogue that can take place among different factions that can lead productively to a way of being that is cooperative, that is amicable, amiable, affable, all of the above. We can come up with lots of good synonyms. In fact, that would be a fun exercise. Different types of love. Just as the Eskimos have so many hundred or two hundred names, is it, for snow, 
So we can have those distinctions in the domain of love. From romantic love to brotherly love to sisterly love to parent, parental love to neighborly love. Well, you could say with an adjective we do. We condition and modify our love. Love of the universe, love of God, love of source, love of stars, love of sun and moon, love of nature, on and on it goes. You see, there are ways. Uh, to bridge the gaps. So there is enough abundance through nature on planet Earth. Enough food, enough water, enough shelter, enough education, enough love that we can really all live in harmony. And it, we do have to exercise greater intelligence. We do have to be extremely mindful of the growing population. And there are ways to do it. There are ways to do it. Yes, I know there are stumbling blocks. There are all sorts of religious dogmas that say this is okay and this is not okay. Well, I feel personally that the dogma, if you want to call it that, of biology, let's just say, the codices of biology should be our template for what can be in our society. There's a fabulous phrase that has been coined called biomimicry. And the more we base our own homes, structures, and in many ways lives on biological antecedents, biological analogs, the more harmonious we can be with nature. I mean, you could think of nature as a vast scientific experiment that has been in process testing different ways of being, acting, different anatomical parts, different physiological processes for literally hundreds of millions, if not billions of years. Interesting. So why invent the wheel? Nature has already provided so many answers. If things have survived till until today, it's a pretty good indication that it can survive until tomorrow. So with that as our teacher, we can listen to that instead of the man-made stories about what's what. And the man-made stories best worth listening to are those that are themselves following the lead of nature, be it from the Tao or, uh, or the Buddha or from Jesus Christ, who talks about mustard seeds and fields, you know. So everything ultimately comes back to nature being our mentor, nature being our guide, our teacher, and guru. So anyway, I think this is plenty for all of you to think about, and I hope harmonize with, resonate with. There's a lot to be done by each of us. There's a micro-macro relationship that we all really want to be paying close attention to and recognize that our own happiness generates more happiness in the world, and that's something we want to be really conscious about. So we become, as according to the Jewish teaching, um, our obligation to God is to be happy. And I love that. I love that. Um, if we are happy, we also recognize that our own immune system is working better. Our own uh, blood flow increases. Our uh, our toxic hormonal 
um, uh, releases are reduced. I mean, in every single way, there's a win-win-win. So I benefit, you benefit, we all benefit. That's the way to create a beautiful and harmonious we. So I hope this is interesting, amusing, and titillating for you all. And uh, you know that I'm on every Wednesday at 6 p.m. I uh, so appreciate all of your attention. We're, of course, on Facebook at A Better World Media. You might have to poke around a little bit, but we are there. So is Mitchell J. Rabin. And uh, like us, visit us, and we have a Twitter account also, the name of which I forgot. But it's all on our website www.abetterworld.tv We also have a weekly free newsletter and we've been having some technical difficulties with our website regarding signing up for said newsletter but uh, if you do not succeed the first time try and try again. We are working diligently at getting this straightened out and it will get straightened out and also Forward this show and others that are all free in our radio archive at that same website to your friends. I mean, we really span a huge uh, subject matter from consciousness and spirituality and future thinking and global thinking and the domains of environments, of healing, of alternative therapies and medicine to nutrition to sound thinking, authentic thinking of the role of humor in health and healing. Uh, next week we'll have Dr. Bernie Siegel on, famous surgeon from Yale No Haven Hospital, who's written a series of books on the subject of bringing love back into medicine. Where'd it go? How did it disappear in the first place? Those are good questions. We'll be talking about some of that. The following week we'll be... Uh, Hardwiring Your Brain for Happiness with Dr. Rick Hansen, a neuroscientist. So we deal with these subjects as well as all the way up to the body politic and who's making what decisions where and when. Do we have a just society? Do we have a just electoral system? Is campaign financing um, just or is it corrupt? Oh, yeah. Am I pushing any buttons here? You know, how to have a better life. What is sustainability? How can I enjoy it? How can I contribute to the world? How can I be a better human being? These are all the kinds of subjects that we address here on, that's why it's called it, A Better World. Thanks so much for joining us. This is Mitchell J. Rabin. I so, so enjoy your uh, being part of this A Better World community and family Again, abetterworld.tv, go join anytime. Of course, I am a therapist, and I do work with people, and I work with uh, business associates. I deal with helping them communicate with each other because that's the basis of a happy, holy, harmonious family, couple, or business relationship. It's all human communication. On that note, Thanks so much for joining us, and let us be communicated to right now by Wolfgang Amadeus 